0: Coincidences are weird. They can happen anytime, from any direction, about anybody, about anything. Well, episode 230 of Edge of Your Sea Podcast has a couple of coincidences. Kind of weird, kind of sad, kind of cool, kind of funny, kind of here we are. I'm your host, Brandon Lachance, and I've had the next 20 episodes of Edge of Your Sea Podcast mapped out. When I was going to do them, or Around the Time, Who's the Guest, all those kind of things. This show, again, episode 230, came up next, and the guest was planned to be Gary K. Wolf. And I'm super excited to finally get the show out. And I was so excited to talk to the Earlville native, 10 minutes away from where I live, Mendota, who wrote Who Censored Roger Rabbit in the 80s, Which became a world-renowned movie and a childhood favorite of mine, which made this really cool for me, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I watched that movie non-stop as a kid. I loved it. I know it was a little controversial, Jessica Rabbit, supermodel, cartoon character, some of the language, some of the innuendo between human beings and cartoon characters. In the 80s, it was kind of risque my family let me watch it and I loved it. I'll still watch it to this day. It's a great movie. Well, the movie turned 34 on June 22nd and Gary Wolf published Jessica Rabbit's origin story called Serious Business in May. So, Who Friend Roger Rabbit had an anniversary. Wolf had a new book coming out. I was like, I gotta get a hold of this guy. And it was rather easy. He was energetic, enthusiastic about talking with me And the conversation was amazing. Fantastic. What I liked is it was one of those chats, conversations where I would say a couple things and then he would go off and just speak about memories and things that happened. And it was really cool. It was like a storytelling session, which at Edge of Your Seat Podcast is always welcomed. So I get into the editing process. I'm preparing the show and my phone lights up i'm like man i gotta get going what is this it was an alert about boston celtics legend bill russell passing away at 88 years old the coincidence you ask wolf has been living in boston for quite some time on different stints never had any connection with boston whatsoever on edge of your seat podcast i mean we're in illinois an hour and a half from chicago Don't really know a lot of people out in Boston. Not a Boston sports fan. I mean, I always thought Bill Russell was amazing and Larry Bird and a few others, but not a a Boston guy. I'm a Chicago guy. So to have two Boston references around the same show, on the same show, is very awesome. Rest in peace, Bill Russell. Thank you, Gary Wolf, for sharing your stories and the history Of Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit, and other of your creative, your imagination ran wild with these characters, which is amazing for people like me. So to have this kind of Boston-themed show was definitely a coincidence. Not planned, but I'm glad it happened. The other coincidence is Wolf, like I said, is from Merleville. And I met Ignea Pizzeria. Napolitana owner, Tim Cotton Jim, who became a sponsor, thank you so much. We love our advertisers, our sponsors. and Igna is now one with us. So excited to talk pizza, eat pizza, which I did. It was amazing. So excited for this as well. Cotton Jim, I met him quite a few years ago when I was working for a local newspaper, and he was coaching the Earlville soccer team. and Decided, hey, our ads are going to start here. Well, the show that I had already planned was Gary Wolf. So it was just coincidental. And the map, the geography of where people have been and things like that, they might not even know each other. But the Boston connection, the Earlville connection, I was like, you know what? We're going to call this the show of coincidences. But this is a perfect segue to introduce Edge of Your Seat Podcast's newest sponsor, Ignea Pizzeria Napolitana. I like saying it like that. I'm going to try to say that as much as possible. Napolitana. Ignia Pizzeria Napolitana. I mean, there are pizza joints in almost every village, town, or city we talk about or represent on Edge of Your city Podcast. Deep dish, thin crust, in-between crust, meats, veggies, cheese, the works. Each of them have all of the options we're used to, except... Ignea Pizzeria Napoletana. The pizzeria located at 215 Jefferson Street in Ottawa is different than the norm. Ignea, meaning fiery in Italian, is exactly what you get as the traditional wood-fired oven Napolitan pizza is topped with their fresh in-house mozzarella and San Marzano tomatoes. The meats are delicious, veggies, fresh, petitely cut, add the in-house lemonade and drinks and other food items unlike other menus around the area or the country, including dessert options. I had the vanilla gelato, which is ice cream, but for some odd reason it was different. It was fantastic. And this is a dining experience unlike any other. We've only spoken about half of the event known as a night out at an exquisite establishment. You know, the food, but what about the environment? Elegant, sleek, refined, fresh, new, full of drip, if we're talking 2022 language. Kind of defines Ignea, pizzeria, napolitana. But only you can find the right adjective to fit your experience. Ignea is open Monday, Thursday, and Friday, 4 to 9 p.m. throughout the week. Saturday, it's open 12 to 9, and Sunday, 12 to 8. Ignea is closed on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Call 815-324-9229 for carryout, delivery, or to book a reservation. Got to get back to Bill Russell. I mean, again, I'm a Chicago guy. Not really have any ties to Boston. Anybody that I've ever had on the show, the only one that I can think of as a guest that has any ties to Boston. Okay, two. I just thought of two would be Brian Hansen, St. Bede boys basketball coach who loves Larry Bird. That's his guy. So we'll call that a connection. And a former bank employee who I had on during COVID as a mother who was going crazy with schedules and keeping kids home from school and work and everything that was going on. And Amanda Koss, who is a Boston native. So I didn't mean to lie. I guess I've had a couple little Boston references, but nothing like this. But Bill Russell, 11 NBA championship rings, has always been put in the GOAT conversation, but not put in the GOAT conversation, if you know what I mean. He's been put there because 11 rings, that's the most anybody's ever won. And he was a player, he was a player's coach, he was incredible defensive player, things of that nature. But with the likes of a Michael Jordan, a Wilt Chamberlain, now a LeBron James, a Larry Bird, a Magic Johnson, a Shaquille O'Neal, a Kobe Bryant. Bill Russell has been pushed off of a pedestal that he was on in the 50s and 60s as a great, a legend, an icon in the NBA history, the NBA aura, but not a GOAT. Unless you're from Boston and watched basketball in that era, you're not putting Bill Russell as the GOAT. You're not. It's crazy. I mean, he's got... The classifications, he's got the resume, he's got the criteria. Second overall pick in 1956 by the St. Louis Hawks. Boston legend, coach, manager, GM, did everything. Red Arbuck wanted Russell, but couldn't get higher in the draft. So he did his, his work, his behind the scenes. Listen, what do you want? How can I help you help me? St. Louis wanted Ed McCulley. He was a six time all star who had roots in St. Louis. And had a sick kid who was in St. Louis that he wanted to be around more. This is NBA. It was a business like it is now. But a little, you know, it was a little heartfelt business. Cared a little bit more about people and things like that. That doesn't happen in 2022. That didn't happen in the 90s or the 80s either. It's a business. It's money. Big money. Nobody cared about feelings and where you were and and things like that. But with his roots, St. Louis wanted him like hey we'll make a deal we'll give you bill russell you give us ed McCauley. we're cool with that they get to the signing time they're getting close to the trade st louis is like nope, no nope, no nope. we want a little more russell seems like he's gonna be all right and you guys got a good player there they still did underrate him they didn't think he was gonna be an 11 time nba champion but they're like hey give us cliff hagen too who was a great player of his own right and at the time was in the military and hadn't even suited up for the Celtics. Red still debated. He's like, I know Cliff's a good good player. We need him. But this Bill Russell guy is going to change our franchise. His defense, his athletic ability, we need him. So Russell decided to do the trade. He gave Ed McCulley and Cliff Hagan to the St. Louis Hawks for Bill Russell. The rest is history. Russell Won a ring for Boston Celtics his rookie year, 1957. Followed it with 10 more. And eight in a row. 1959 to 1966, nobody could beat the Celtics. Then they did it again in 68 and 69 after not winning the championship in 67. Dominance. The definition of dominance. He was a five-time MVP, most valuable player in the NBA during a time when centers prolific centers prolific he played against Will Chamberlain Hal Greer Jerry Lucas Willis Reed Nate Thurmond just to name some legendary centers that he played against but you can also throw in the Jerry West the Elgin Baylors the Lenny Wilkins and pretty much a million other NBA Hall of Famers that he played against in an era where it was his era like the style of play that he played everybody else was doing the same thing five time mvp 12 time all star three times on the first team eight times on the second team four time rebounding champ received the nba lifetime achievement award in 2017 and he's been a member of every anniversary team the nba has had 25 years 35 years 50 years 75 years, and that will not stop when they have 100 125. Bill Russell is still going to be on those teams, he's not ever going to fall off of an NBA anniversary team. His averages this is insane 963 games between 1956 and 1969. He averaged 42.3 minutes a game as a 6'10. 215 pound center that is a lot of minutes there's no centers racking up 42 minutes a game currently not happening he averaged 15.1 points i mean he didn't need to score he did score he could score but he was the defensive mastermind and athletic body which shows in his rebounding category 22.5 rebounds per game for his career you heard me right, 22.5. Also had 4.3 assists. The dude could do absolutely everything. Obviously, didn't get to watch him in person. Have watched some clips. I mean, the Celtics are the famed franchise of all time when it comes to NBA with the Los Angeles Lakers. Those two squads are the legendary acts of the NBA. When you think NBA, besides you know where you're at, because that's usually your team first, But after that, when you're thinking the history of the sport, what teams mean to an association, the Lakers and the Celtics are those two squads for the NBA. And for the Boston Celtics, it starts with Bill Russell. It actually may end with Bill Russell. Because after that era, they've won six. A lot of that's Larry Bird. Actually, five of those are Larry Bird. And one in 2008 with Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, When they started the Big Three movement, which has now carried on and kind of made basketball stale at times. That is a conversation for another time. But the Celtics are not on that pedestal without Bill Russell. Rest in peace. He will not be the GOAT to me. I mean, there's a guy named Michael Jordan who will always be the best player in the world to me. But he's up there. He did a lot of amazing things and he deserves all the credit for everything he did. I don't think he's an overrated player, not at all. I've seen some headlines, some stories and back in the day when saying was an overrated center and overrated NBA legend. No, not at all. The guy played with integrity, he was a positive role model, and he could play the game, which is first and foremost the number one importance. He won games. He made his team better. That's what an NBA player does. Mendota Ford is a community dealership that is dedicated to being community first. A small dealership in a smaller town, the staff of General Manager Ski Hartman and his associate Jason Hintz pride themselves in being here for you. They don't want to sell you one vehicle, they want to form a bond, a relationship, to get you every vehicle you want, and cars, trucks, and SUVs for your friends and family. Ski has lived in Princeton since he was five, and has been with Mendota Ford for two years. He has plenty of experience helping you with all of your vehicle needs as he has been in the motorcycle business for 20 years and over 10 years in car sales and management. Jason Hintz has been with Mendota Ford for seven years. He's originally from Mendota, giving him the experience needed to help customers in every way possible. You can purchase any vehicle off any lot in the Mendota Ford family, Ski and Jason, We'll make sure they track it down and hand you the keys with a little jingle jangle. To check out the many options on the lot, Mendota Ford is located just south of Mendota on Highway 251. To look ahead or find a vehicle on another lot, check out www.MendotaFord.com. Call 815-539-9314 for all vehicle inquiries with Mendota Ford. Again, I'm your host, Brandon LaChance. This is episode 230 of Edge of Your Seat Podcast. Let's do the plugs. Just did the Mendota Ford ad. This show is brought to you by Mendota Ford. Community dealership that is here for you. Much love to all of our sponsors, including Mendota Ford. And you can listen to every single episode of Edge of Your Seat Podcast. So the previous 290 and this one on... Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website, www.rss.com, backslash podcast, that is with an S, it is plural, backslash edge of your seat podcast. Have any questions, suggestions, want to be a guest, know somebody that would be a good guest, like something or don't like something, I said, a guest said just want to talk, whatever you want to do, send an email, edgeofyourseatpodcast at gmail.com. Much love, shout out to our guy, Brian Cavelli, the mastermind behind the intro and outro beat of Edge of Your Seat Podcast. Well, we want you to hear Gary Wolf's stories of Roger Rabbit, how it all came together. Man, so awesome to speak to this guy. I bought the Jessica rabbit origin story. I had to, I had to, after this conversation, I was like, I want to read everything this guy has wrote. Such a great creative mind. And I gotta, I gotta see what's going on. I got, I gotta get in Toontown. I want to relive my childhood, jump back in it and have fun with it. And Gary allows you to do so, no doubt. So we're gonna do a couple ads for Olsen construction and SureStep. Also in the sponsorship advertisement family with Edge of Your Seat Podcasts, Much love to them as well, always. And then we're getting to Gary Wolf. So until next time, which hopefully is real soon. Like I said, I got shows mapped out, guests, everything else. Trying to get everything in the vault out. Because school is right around the corner. Mendota High School starts August 10th. Today is August 2nd. We got to get this out. We got to get these out. So then when sports start and everything is fresh, we're right there with it. Until next time. Peace. It's
1: gratifying to me to think that something that I created back in 1981, uh, the characters I created have become cultural icons. I, I, you, you want to you want to do the interview? I don't want
0: to I don't want to go on and, yeah. on, and on and on and tell you stuff you don't want. Is to it care, okay but, yeah. if I do this for? Like I said, I do a podcast as well called Edge of Your Seat Podcast. It's a absolutely pretty much sure. all over Illinois, and mm-hmm. uh, I have a, a guest on every single time. So it'd be amazing if we could do this for that, and then I'll take quotes and stuff and put it in the story. Sure, absolutely. Edge of Your Seat Podcast, real special guest today. Did not know that the creator of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a childhood monumental movie for me that I watched a gazillion times. I didn't count, so I can't tell you a correct number, but I'm gonna say a gazillion times. Gary Wolf from Earlville, right next to Mendota. Never knew that. Gary, how are you? I'm great, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh, My mother used to take me over to Mendota to do clothes shopping. We shopped at Khalil's uh, department store over there. And uh, afterwards, we would go to some drug store on your main street and have a hot fudge Sunday, And they would bring you the hot fudge in a little glass pitcher, uh, warm, and you would pour the hot fudge over your ice cream. And if you wanted more hot fudge, bottomless glass jar. So
0: I got a lot of fond memories of Mendota. That is awesome. And then before we hit the record button, you said you read local newspapers all over the place, including the Mendota Reporter.
1: I read the Earlville Leader. I read the Ottawa Times. I read the Chicago Tribune. And I read the Mendota Reporter. I was a big newspaper guy. And I am still a big newspaper guy. I still read newspapers every day. I read the New York Times. I read the Boston Globe and uh it's sad to say i read usa today uh every single day yeah uh um, i i like to i like to keep up with the news and i i learned to read
0: newspapers when i was a kid it was a lot of uh, gave me a great sense of pleasure and i still do it when we were exchanging emails you said hey let's talk and you gave me a time and you said boston time are you in boston I am in Boston, yeah. I've been in Boston for,
1: it just passed the time when I've been in Boston longer than I've been in anywhere else. I, of course, I grew up in Earlville, spent uh, you know, my early years there, then went to University of Illinois, got out of the University of Illinois and went in the Air Force, and I was assigned to Boston. I, so I came to Boston and lived here for three years and then volunteered to go to Vietnam, went to Vietnam for two years as an air commando came back and they reassigned me to Boston. So I lived in Boston for another year before I got out. 14 years in San Francisco. And at that point I sold Roger Rabbit to the movies and could pretty much live anywhere I wanted. I, and by then I'd met my wife and we'd gotten married. and I actually met her in Boston and um, we looked around everywhere for places that, that we might want to live. We looked at Chicago, which uh, you know I thought was really kind of nice, uh, looked at Atlanta, Paris, London. But we kept coming back to Boston. And uh, we now live in Boston in a condo. And when I was living in Boston as an Air Force uh, sale lieutenant and lieutenant, I was living on Commonwealth Avenue. The next street over is Alston Street, which is where we now live. And the next street over from that is Corey Road, where my wife lived. Uh, so from my office, which is top floor of, of this high-rise, uh, high-rise building, I can see where I used to live when I met her. If I go out the back door, I can turn our left, and I can go by the the apartment where she was living when I met her. And if I just go straight down Olsen Street, there is the laundromat where we had our first date. So, you know, I've come back to my roots.
0: You had your first day at a laundromat. I love
1: it. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really hot. She was a stewardess. And uh, I was an Air Force, uh, I was a captain by that time. You know, I was dashing. Now I'm, I'm just old and fat, but in those days I was young and slim and dashing. And of course she was dropped dead gorgeous. I had met her and I, I called her up and I said, hey, you know, I'm going to pick you up from the airport. Uh, and she says, oh yeah, but I'm, I'm going to have my, my dirty laundry with me. I'm, I'm having to take my dirty laundry on the plane because it's, it was, she was she used to do like four and five days trips and she so she would bring back her dirty laundry. I said, ah, no problem, I'll bring mine and we'll go to the laundry. Yeah. But, you know, we'll do our laundry together, which I thought was so hot. You know, our skitties all turning around in the washing machine together. And uh, so we bought some popsicles at the little uh, convenience store next door, sat on the washing machine to get our popsicles. Got hit by this monumental snowstorm. I mean, it was monumental. Uh, so we walked back to my place because it was the closest. Uh, she stayed over. I uh, she stayed in the bedroom. I slept on the sofa. And yeah, uh, that was our first date. I you know, it's been all uphill since
0: then. I'm, I'm loving it. Awesome. And what's her name?
1: Oh, Bonnie.
0: Was she the inspiration behind Jessica Rabbit? Uh well, yes and no. Um,
1: I'll, I'll let, let me give you let me give you the story. Let me tell you how this whole Raji Rabba thing came to be because it involves a lot of Roville. And uh, you know, Roville is just Mendota was removed. So everything really started when I was in the ah, second or third grade. My teacher gave us a picture to color. She said, take this home and, and color it in. And the whole purpose of the exercise was to stay inside the lights. That was awesome. That was the only point in the exercise. And I mean, there was nobody better at staying inside the lines than I was. So I took that picture home and I looked at it. Uh, it was a typical farm scene, a fence, a, a meadow, a farmhouse, a barn, and, and a, one cow standing all by itself out in the middle, the middle of the field. So I colored the farmhouse uh, kind of yellow, because that was what a lot of farmhouses were around Earlville and then. colored the barn red, colored the fence brown colored the grass green and I saw that cow all by itself out there in the middle of that field and I thought to myself something my mother had told me she said that when you know when people are all by themselves she said they get sad they get lonely and they get blue so I saw that poor sad lonely cow out there I called that cow blue so I you know handed the picture in the next day the day after that the teacher handed them all back except for mine and she said, she said, Gary, come up to the front of the class. So I went up to the front of the class, she faced face the class. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I stayed inside the lines better than anybody. So she held that picture up over my head. She said, class, look at this stupid, stupid picture. She said, everybody knows that cows are brown, cows are black, cows are white. Cows are sometimes brown, black, and white, all three. But never, never, never are cows do, she said, Gary, don't you ever do anything this stupid again. So she called my mother, and my mother had to go to school. I mean, that's what's a big deal for my mother. I came home, and, and my mother called me in the living room, and, and she sat me down with her with my father, and she said, Gary, why did you color that cow blue? And I said, geez, ma, I, you know, it was you, really. It wasn't me, it was, it was you. you. You know, you said people get sand lonely, they get blue. So there's a cow, sand lonely, I color the cow blue. She said, all right. She said, you go out. Play for a while. Your dad and I have to talk about this. I went outside and I played. I didn't think this was going to have a happy ending. I mean, you got to know my mother and father a little bit. I mean, everybody in Earlville knows them of a certain age, but they were they were children of the Depression. My dad had to drop out of school in the third grade to go to work, and my mother had to drop out of school in the eighth grade to go to work. So these were not what you would call well educated urban liberals. I mean, these were hard scrabble working folk and i didn't think this was going to have a happy ending for me so finally my mother called me back in and she's "Gary and now she says your dad and i talked about it and we decided the next time you want to call her cow blue you go ahead and call her cow blue so she called my teacher she said you know next time he wants to do something like that let it it's fine with us about a week later the teacher gave us another assignment and uh, it was to describe what she did on her summer vacation uh, you know, the kids were writing about how they went up to Lake Namakagan, up in, up in northern Wisconsin, and some of them went to the Dells, and, you know, some of them went to Starved Rock. And, and I wrote about how I went out of my backyard, and I built a rocket ship out of tin cans and aluminum foil, and I flew to the moon. That was what I did on my summer vacation. And so I passed that in, and the next day the teacher passed it back. I said, well, that was quite the trip. You know, that was really the first indication that I ever had validation of creativity from anybody I uh, was my mother and father. I still got that picture saying it in my office over my desk. You know, the other thing that influenced what I wrote later years, uh, again, my mother, and my mother was a wonderful woman. My mother said, you know, my dad ran the pool hall in Earlville, and my mother worked in a school cafeteria. And my mother said, look, you know, if you want to get out of this town, you don't want to wind up staying here for the rest of your life and running your dad's pool halls the one thing you can do to make that happen is to read good mother that she was she didn't put any restriction at all on what i could read so and when i read i read what kids read i read comic books and on the andy giles smoke shop uh, on the corner of main street and i'd read everything i could before he kicked me out then i'd buy other comics with my allowance and i'd trade those with my friends and uh, yeah, I read nothing but comic books. Donald Duck, Uncle Scrooge. Uh, I was uh, was early Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. And then I'd go to the Lyric Theater and watch uh, watch the movies. Every night I'd go because it was only 14 cents and I'd go every night. And they always played a cartoon. And I loved cartoons. I loved uh, Woody Woodpecker and uh, Heckle and Shickle and Porky Pig. I especially loved Donald Duck. I mean, Donald Duck was my favorite. I loved Donald Duck. My other reading material was something that my dad read and my dad you know he wasn't a big reader he didn't read books but he read magazines and the magazines that he read uh, this was the 50s were what we called true crime magazines it's exactly what they were they were magazines about true crimes and uh, mostly murders they would send a photographer and a reporter to a murder scene photograph the murder scene with the body and if the body wasn't uh you know photographically appealing and they would move the body <laughs> so that the body made a better picture and if you if you saw a movie called road to perdition with tom cruise there was a guy in there uh jude law who played a photographer who was that kind of a photographer who went to crime scenes based on a real guy named ouija but anyway that's what my dad read true crime magazines and so they were around the house so i read them too and again my mother my mother never once said to me, don't read those, they'll rat your brain. Uh, you know, as long as I read, she didn't really care. Luckily I graduated to a better class of crime fiction, you know, Daniel Hammett, Mike Hammer. But I always grew up with a love for two things, a love for comic books and cartoons, and a love for crime, like noir detective mysteries. Those are my two loves. And years later, I, uh, I got a, a four book deal from Doubleday. I started writing short stories because my wife encouraged me. I was—I wrote her poems and she said, oh, you yeah, know, you write such nice poems. So why don't you try writing a short story? So I did. And I wrote a short story, science fiction story, love story. It was uh, 50 pages long and they paid me 50 bucks for it. This was uh, when we were living in San Francisco. And I was as happy with that as I've ever been with anything I've ever written because that kind of validated the fact that I really was a professional writer. I had made money on something I'd written. So I decided to very well get a writer, writer wardrobe. So this being in San Francisco, I went out and got a, a tweed jacket with leather patches on the sleeves. I, I got a black turtleneck and a pair of custom made leather pants from a company called East West Musical Instrument Company. And I'm I'm proud to say I can still wear those leather pants today. Except that uh, I got these in the uh, 70s, and they're wide bill bottoms, so, uh, you know, good luck. These are my cowboy boots. So. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wrote uh, a string of short stories. They, they've all been collected in a book called Road to Toontown, but I wrote a string of short stories. Never had a reject. Uh, I would just write a short story, send it to a magazine, and it came back. And I realized that, you know, instead of writing 12 short stories, I could write a novel. So I wrote a novel, I went off to day, that was called Killer Bowl, which is uh, a novel about uh, sports played in the future as uh, football played as a blood sport, where the, the uh, combatants play it with weapons, and uh, I wrote it in 1976. It was set in 2010, 2011, and I predicted a lot of stuff. I predicted mixed martial arts, wrestling, predicted the internet, I predicted the gas crisis, a whole bunch of stuff. Double Day, based on that, gave me a contract for three more books, so I wrote, uh, I wrote two of those science fiction novels. Then I, it came time to write my fourth novel for Double Day, and I wanted to do something that would incorporate the things that I, I love the most, the cartoons, comic books, and noir mysteries, and, you know, not easy to do. Uh, You know, I was watching Saturday morning cartoons one Saturday morning to get inspiration, you know. Inspiration, I told my wife, it's just research. I'm not enjoying this at all. I became taken not with the cartoons themselves, which were pretty simplistic back then and the, you know, Inventions of cartoons that would be funny if they were translated into a real human world. And I, I wrote the book. Named the detective uh, Eddie Valiant. I named him Eddie after my father. I thank him for all those. And I think inspiring true crime novels he gave me. The rabbit was named Roger after, after my only boy cousin. Jessica was just a name that I happen to like a lot. I wrote the novel. So I sent it to Doubleday. This was the fourth novel of my four-book deal. A couple of weeks after I sent it to Doubleday, they sent it back. Uh, They rejected it. First reject I'd ever had in my life. And it was that book, Who Censored Roger Rabbit. And so I called my my editor and I said, Sharon, why did you reject this book? She said, I I had to. She said, I thought it was funny. I said, she's funny. I said, this is the best thing I've ever written. It's probably the best thing I'll ever write. She says, yeah, I agree. She said, but it was so different from anything you've written. For anything that anybody's written before that I had to send it to the marketing department, and they were the ones who rejected it. So I called the marketing department and I said, You know, I headed the marketing. I said, Chuck, why, why did not you reject this book? I said, Well, if there's no category for it on the bookstore shelves. We all loved it, but we can't sell this book. So It's not a regular adult book. It's not a fantasy. It's not a children's book. It's not science fiction. And there's no category for it. I can't sell this book. I said, All right. What would you do if somebody gave you The Wizard of Oz, or Gulliver's Travels, or, or, or Alice in Wonderland? What would you do with those? And he thought for a minute, He says, "Eh, I couldn't sell those either." So I went to my agent and I said, "Bill, you know what? What am I going to do if I can't publish this book? I don't want to be a writer anymore because this is what I want to write." And uh, my agent said, "I oh, don't worry. Don't worry. He says, we'll we'll find a home for it." So he started sending it out to different publishers, different editors in the same publisher. Along the way, it accumulated 110 rejects. It was rejected 110 times. My wife used to call the trip out to the mailbox. In those days, you got rejects by mail. Uh, I don't get many rejects, but I guess when you do get them now, you get them by email. But in those days, you, you... Got it by mail, and my wife used to call my trip out to the mailbox every day. The daily disappointments, because I would go out there and come back with like five rejects for *Censored Roger Rabbit*. And so finally, on the 111th submission, it came across the desk of a woman named Rebecca Martin, who was an editor at St. Martin's Press, and she had just edited a major bestseller for them. So uh, the. President of the St. Martin's Press gave her a vanity project. He said, whatever book you want to publish next, fine. You publish whatever you want. And just then, Who Censored Roger Rabbit came across her desk, and she read it, and she said, this is the book. So she went to the president of the company and said, hey, this is the book I want to publish. It's my vanity project. So she said, all right, let me read it tonight, and I'll get back in the morning. So he took it home, came back the morning, said, Rebecca, I said you could publish anything you wanted But you can't publish this because I can't sell it. And Rebecca stepped up to the plate and said, you know, either publish it or I quit. So they published it, uh, albeit in very small quantities, uh, very small. You know, now people ask me, if you could live your life over, if you had a time machine that could live your life over, uh, what would you do differently? And there's there's a simple answer for that. If I had a time machine, I would go back to when Who Censored Roger Rabbit was published. Because it was 5,000 copies at two ninety nine a copy. And I would buy them all. And I would put them in a barn somewhere. Because now when you go on eBay, if you can find one at all, it's north of $450. So, you know, that, that would certainly fund my retirement. But, you know, they did publish it. And uh, I sold it in 1980. It came out in 1981. And between 1980 and 1981, uh, I got this call at home. You know, this guy says, is this Gary K. Wolf? I said, yeah, it is. He says, well, hey, this is Roy Disney from the Disney Corporation. And I said, yeah, right. Roy Disney calling me at home. Yeah, who is this really? He says, no, no, it's really Roy Disney. And I just read your book, Who Sends to Roger Rabbit? And I said, yeah, right. It hasn't come out yet. It's not coming out for another six months. He says, And I found out that somebody at St. Martin's Press sent a manuscript copy of the book to Disney with an old saying, I think you'd like this. And I tried to find out who did that uh, so that I could kiss her or him full on the lips. But I never found out who did that. But anyway, it made us way up to Roy Disney. And Roy Disney said, yeah, we, we would really like to make this into a movie. So he said, would you like the Walt Disney Company to make your book into a movie? First, I didn't think the book was filmable. The book was the best book that I was capable of writing. I had used a lot of conventions in it uh, that were really funny that makes a reader use his or her imagination. The characters in the book talk with word balloons like they do in comic strips, so that when you're talking to a, a tune, you don't talk to him, you read him, and if he turns around, his word balloon turns around, and uh, he, can d- he can disconnect his word balloon and hit you over the head with it. Uh, if a cartoon gun kills somebody, it produces a bang balloon. That bang from the bang balloon kind of, it gets rigid, and it, it, if it doesn't break when it hits the sidewalk, you can collect that bang balloon and then compare it to another bang balloon, and if the two bang balloons match, it came from the same gun. So, it's all kinds of conventions that I use that I thought would make this this book unfilmable, uh, but th- they offered me more money for it than everything I ever made before put together. You know, why not to let them try? So I said, "Oh yeah, sure, love to love to have you, that. love to have you do that." So um, for the first couple of years, they, they proved me right. In those days, this was 1980 1985, and Disney really did not have the horsepower to produce this movie. They were a second-rate production company. That's why they needed this movie so badly. They were making uh, movies that were destined to be the second half of double features, and there were no more double features. You know, they were making movies uh, like Flubber and uh, The Nutty Professor and Herbie. The Black Hole and The Black Cauldron, which disappeared down the black hole. They had been offered E.T. and they passed. They had been offered Star Wars and they passed. So they needed a big hit. They needed something to reestablish themselves, and they saw this as being that movie. They really didn't have the horsepower. And another problem is they didn't have the technology. In 1980 to 1985, the technology to make this movie had not yet been developed, so it really wasn't uh, wasn't going anywhere. At one point, Roy Disney came to me and said, hey, you know, we're not having any luck doing this This as a live-action animated movie. What would you say if... Instead of animated characters, we had characters in costumes like we do at, uh, at Disneyland. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, I'm going to have the Disney stable. I'm going to have Fred McMurray as Eddie Valiant. I'm going to have Haley Mills as Jessica. I'm going to have Dean Jones as the rabbit and Kurt Russell as Baby Herman. And I said, you know, don't you think that that kind of compromises the premise just a little bit? Yeah, everybody agreed, so they went off. And I didn't think anything would ever really happen. I had pretty much given up by '85, but then a couple of things did happen. Uh, Roy Disney got forced out. Michael Eisner came in, and Mike brought with him a guy named Jeff Kassenberg. We'd worked with at Paramount, I think, and they had made a little movie called Jaws and a you know bunch of other stuff. And they threw out every movie that Disney had in development, all except for Roger Rabbit, which they both said we have to make this movie so they did something that nobody at disney had ever done before they brought in an outside producer and that outside producer of course was a little known guy named steven spielberg and to show you what a difference
0: steve spielberg makes in hollywood in 1983 Roy Disney
1: went to Warner Brothers and said, hey, we're doing this live action animated movie and we're going to have all of our Disney characters in it and we would want to use Bugs Bunny in a cameo. We'd want him to come in and just say, what's up, Doc, and eat a carrot and go off. He'd be on screen for no more than 30 seconds. What do you think of that? And Warner Brothers said to Roy Disney, get lost. Get lost. There's no way that Bugs Bunny is ever going to be and a Walt Disney picture. That is never gonna happen. So in uh, on 1986, Steve Spielberg goes to Warner Brothers and makes the identical request. Can we have Bugs Bunny for you know, a 30 second cameo? And they look at Steve Spielberg and they say, of course, of course, take it. What about Porky Pig? I want him and How about Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner and, and Yosemite know, Sam and, you know, take them all, take them all. Steve Spielberg gets all the characters. There is one restriction. Bugs Bunny being a superstar, had a contract in his contract. Bugs Bunny's contract specifies that he has to be in every scene with Mickey Mouse because he's a co-equal superstar. You cannot have Mickey Mouse in a scene without Bugs being with him. So if you go back and look at the movie, you will see that they are in every scene together. They have to have the exact same number of minutes of screen time and they have to have the exact same number of words of dialogue. All right, and you can go by and count them and see if that's what it was. Something else that I just found out just a couple of months ago, actually, that I didn't know. uh, Warner Brothers also specified that all of the Warner Brothers characters uh, had to be the 1986 characters. And the Disney animators wanted the Warner Brothers characters to be the 1946 characters, which are markedly different. Books Bunny changed a lot from 1946. 1986 he doesn't look like the same rabbit uh, and they all did but warner brothers specified that they wanted the modern characters not the old ones disney did two versions they did a version with the old characters and they did a version with the new characters they showed the new characters to warner brothers and they put the old characters in the movie and warner brothers didn't realize it until they saw the movie come out at the premiere they went ballistic. But then the movie turned out to be a monumental moneymaker. It made $750 million that year. And uh, it turned out that they had tapped a new market. They were able to sell plush toys with um, the old characters as well as the new characters. So they were happy about it. The, the animator who did the work got fired, so it didn't have an entirely happy ending. But uh, So that was it. Anyway, we, we, you know, we, had, we had the characters... The next thing we had to do was get somebody to play Eddie Valiant because uh, it was Eddie Valiant who really had to convince people that this rabbit was real. I wanted Harrison Ford. He said he would he would be interested, but when he found out it was going to take five years, he said, no, nah, I can't do that. And I wanted Paul Newman, but, uh, you know, same deal. You know, we brought in James Woods. We brought in, actually, brought in Kurt Russell. We brought in William Peterson, who I think would have done a good job. Finally, we found a guy that was the perfect Eddie Valiant. You know, we wanted a bankable star because nobody knew if this movie was gonna be any good. So we wanted somebody who was bankable, who would bring in viewers. We found the perfect Eddie Valiant, and that of course was uh, Bill Murray. Uh, Bill Murray was Eddie Valiant. You know, we shot Bill Murray for about a month. Uh, You know, Not only could Bill Murray not convince viewers that that rabbit was real, Bill Murray didn't believe it was real. Bill Murray was always doing double takes. Well, well, you're a talking rabbit. What are you doing here? So, you know, that didn't work. So yeah, they bought him out of his contract, gave him a million dollars, kept looking. And then, you know, we found the guy that was that was the perfect Eddie Valiant, right? Another perfect Eddie Valiant. That, of course, was Eddie Murphy. So now we got a black Eddie Valiant. And now we're rewriting the script so that Eddie Valiant is funnier than the tunes, And that's not going to work either. So, you know, we get rid of him. He gets a million dollars and a Ferrari to buy out of his contract. And, you know, we keep looking. You know, in the meantime, over on the other side of town, Brian De Palma is making a movie called The Untouchables. He really wants Robert De Niro to play Al Capone. But De Niro is making another another movie and can't do it. So De Palma hires a, a British guy named Bob Hoskins to play Al Capone. Well, you know, they're a couple of months into the filming and De Niro calls to Palma and says, Hey, I finished early. I can, I can be in your movie. I can be Al Capone. Now Bob Hoskins has got a million dollars and nothing to do, right? And they said, Hey, let's bring this Hoskins guy. Yeah. And I said, you know, there's no way. The guy's British. He's not just British. He's Cockney British. I, I love Bob Hoskins. I have seen everything he had ever made. The Long Good Friday at uh, Mona Lisa. Everything he'd ever made. I thought he was a brilliant actor, but I said, there's no way that he's going to convince me that he's a prototypical L.A. private eye. It's just never going to do it. So he, he came in
0: and stood on a bear stage, and he was, was running lines, and
1: he spoke with a perfect American accent. Perfect American accent. And not only that, he convinced you that the rabbit was real. He was the perfect choice. And now in my head, I can't picture anybody but Bob Hoskins as any valiant. He was totally devoted to that role. He told me at the end of filming that he saw the rabbit. The rabbit was really real to him. And I hung around with him when he was filming Mermaids in Boston with Cher and on a writer. I hung around for a couple of months and he told me that it, and that it took about six months before that rabbit actually vanished. His son used to chastise him because his son thought that he liked Roger Rabbit better than, than he did the kid. My only regret about the movie, and people say, yeah, I know. when you think of it, I, and I love the movie, my only regret about it is that Bob Hoskins did the most phenomenal job of acting that I have ever seen in my life. I mean, he was standing there in a bare room making it all up in his mind and convincing you that it was real. And he never even got a, an Academy Award nomination for that. He should have won an Oscar for that, hands down. That was just a tour de force of acting, but he didn't. The other problem we had was uh, where the characters, of course, what they looked like, because I had just described them in my uh, in my book. I had, had nev- I'm not an artist, I don't draw. So I've, I've never drawn them, but I described them pretty well in my book. So Steve Spielberg wanted to bring in a lead animator to guide character development and the other animators. And of course, everybody wanted Chuck Jones, the guy that developed Bugs Bunny. I wanted Chuck Jones. Everybody did. Uh, so we interviewed him, and he. we wanted to do it. But he was elderly at the time in his late 60s, and everybody was concerned that the stress of this movie, which was going to last for five years, I'd be very high stress, might, might kill him. And it's the first time in my life that I ever saw anybody in Hollywood show compassion. I mean, he usually they to say, yeah, work him to death, and then, you know, fill his desk with somebody else. But, so we passed on Chuck Jones, and then um, we took a look at Ralph Bakshi, and Ralph Bakshi wanted to do it. Ralph Bakshi had done the uh, X-rated Fritz the Cat animated movie. Steven thought he was kind of a goon, so uh, we passed on him, and then we, we got the perfect choice for animators, uh, lead animator, too. That was a guy named Dick Williams, who was an American living in England as an expat. He had won the Academy Award for the Pink Panther, and he and I sat down and we conceived of what Roger, Jessica, Baby Herman actually looked like, uh, and he drew them. And he drew Roger pretty much the way I had described him in the book, except in the book uh, he was a brown rabbit, and Dick thought that he would look better as a white rabbit because he would stand out from the background more. When he showed me the difference, I I agreed. Dick added that orange top knot to give him a little splash of color. But basically, he was, uh, as I described him in the book, Jessica was getting back to who I based Jessica on. I based Jessica on some of the loves of my my youth growing up in Earlville. And that, of course, was Rita Hayworth, uh, Betty Grable, an actress named Veronica Lake, who wore her hair over one eye it became her trademark look, and in World War II, everybody, all the women were copying that, and they were working in factories, and they found that they were having all kinds of accidents because all of them were doing the Veronica Lake hairstyle with, with her hair over one eye, and they couldn't see. So Veronica Lake's patriotic gesture, cut her hair, and uh, everybody else cut her hair. I mean, that's, what's, that's what That's what won the war, I guess, I don't know. But there was also a cartoon character called... Red Hot Riding Hood, drawn by a guy named Tex Avery. If you look at the old Red Hot Riding Hood cartoons, which you can find on YouTube, you'll see that uh, she is basically Jessica Rabbit's grandmother. She always wears a red outfit, has the red hair, hers is is up in a kind of an updo. Got the narrow wasp waist, and you know, does singing and dancing. Dick Williams wanted Jessica to be. Uh, very narrow-waisted, uh, disproportionate to a real woman, because he wanted to show other animators that Jessica especially had not been rotoscoped. And rotoscoping is a, a process, perfectly legitimate process in animation, where you film a real person doing something, and then you kind of trace over that so that uh, it's a drawing, but it's actually based on a real person. And. He wanted other animators to know that Jessica had not been rotoscoped, that she was purely a figment of animation and imagination. They had to get voices for them. We found Charlie Fleischer, who was the voice of Roger Rabbit. We found him working in a comedy club in L.A. and uh, we saw him, We, we heard he was great at doing voices. Uh, so I went to see him, and, he was, and as part of his routine, he was doing Donald Duck having an orgasm. <laughs> was, I mean, sold everybody. All right, well, it, what, this is the guy. So we brought him in. He sat down with me and, and Dick, and Dick felt that every successful cartoon character had some kind of a speech impediment. Daffy Duck with his lisp, Porky Pig with his stutter. They tried a lot of stuff, and Charlie came up with a stutter on P for please, and that worked pretty well, so we kept that around. As a voice for Jessica, Bob Zemeckis, who was the director that Steven brought in, Bob Z had worked with Kathleen Turner on Romancing the Stones. She came in and she agreed to do it, but they didn't the voice this before they did anything else. And nobody really knew if this was going to be any good. They didn't They didn't know if this was going to be a you know, smash hit or a <laughs> the duck. Nobody knew, so she agreed to do the voice of Jessica. But she would not take screen credit for it. She said, I'll do it, but I want to be anonymous. So that way, if if the movie was a flop, nobody would know it was her. And if the movie was a big success, she'd come out as the mysterious, you know, voice of Jessica Rabbit. This is what James Earl Jones did in uh, Star Wars for the voice of Darth Vader. He did the same thing because nobody, nobody knew if Darth Vader was going to be any good. So uh, he did the same thing. And then when Darth Vader was a success, he, I mean, when star wars was a success he came out and said hey it was me all the time you know that was fine she did the lines but when it came time to sing the song she was pregnant at the time she was eight months pregnant and i don't know if she really can't sing or if she just didn't have the breath control but she couldn't sing the song so stephen who was married to amy irving at the time said to amy who was there at the recording he said hey amy you sang it yensel you give it a whack and i said steve you know there's nobody gonna believe Jessica has one voice when she's singing and another voice when she's speaking. He says, "Ah, nobody will even notice. You we'll know, find movie magic, and nobody ever did." He, even though Amy Irving took screen credit as the singing voice of Jessica Rabbit, uh, but nobody ever noticed that it was two different voices, two different women. You know, we filmed the movie in London. It filmed from 1985 to 1988. We premiered it at uh, Radio City Music Hall in New York City. They did it there so that I wouldn't have to come to L.A. I could just uh, drive down from Boston. So I was sitting at Radio City Music Hall in the um, VIP section. I'm going to see my movie for the first time all the way through. I'd seen it. It's in pieces, but never all the way through. So I was going to see it all the way through for the first time. I was going to see my credit, Gary K. Wolf, on a movie screen for the very first time. And I was sitting between Kathleen Turner on one side... And Amy Irving on the other side, sitting between two of the most beautiful women I've ever met in my life. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, life just doesn't get any better than this. My golly, life got better because Kathleen reached over and put her hand on my leg and whispered in my ear, and says, Gary, are you excited? And I said, Kathleen, you have no idea. So, uh, you yeah, know, the movie opened. The astounding Reviews, it was the best-reviewed movie of 1988. Gross grossed $750 million dollars. Won four Academy Awards at the Academy Awards ceremony in 1989, uh, which I went to, set close enough to share a smell of perfume. I got a multiple movie writing deal out of it with uh, with Disney. Uh, I wrote the sequel novel flood *The Flugtrajcher Rabbit*, and for that one, I had ten publishers bidding on it. And of those ten publishers, every single one of them had rejected the first novel once. Three of them had rejected the first novel twice. And one of them had reception to the first novel three times. So,
0: uh, you know, it just goes to show you, never give up. That's awesome. Thank you for yeah. the whole story. I, a couple of things I want to say, and I'm like, no, nope, don't even do it. Just let them talk.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I do tend to go on. No, you know?
0: that was perfect. That was perfect. I just want to get a little bit of background before I ask you, you know. Oh, wait, I, I,
1: okay, right, but I got I to tell you one other thing, all right? and uh, You can use this for a closer. Because this is a great closer. When we were making the movie, Steve Spielberg wanted everybody to uh, have his or her favorite character in the movie. I mean, you know, people who were in higher levels. And so Bob Hoskins wanted Heckle and Jekyll, so Steve would make sure he got Heckle and Jekyll. Bob C wanted the Roadrunner and Willy Coyote. Dick Williams wanted Droopy. So Steve came to me and he said, Gary, you know, what's your favorite character? I said, Ah, Steve, you know, I got Roger. and, jessica baby herman i think i'm covered and he says oh, okay well you know we'll we'll do something special for you so if you watch the movie when eddie valiant is going through the tunnel into toontown and it's a dark dark tunnel and then all of a sudden curtain comes open and he he comes out and there's singing and dancing and laughter and bloopers of happiness and everything like that if you freeze frame it six frames you gotta be quick if you freeze frame it and look over on the left you will see that there is a yellow farmhouse a red barn a green pasture and a blue cow standing all by itself on the middle
0: of the field that's fantastic that is absolutely awesome so that's my story (laughs) that blue cow is going to be around forever
1: I wrote Who Plugged Roger Rabbit, then I wrote Who Whacked Roger Rabbit, uh, my three Toontown novels, and then during the pandemic, I figured, I thought Jessica needed a, a, a book of her own, so I wrote Jessica Rabbit's Serious Business, which Serious with an X, X-E-R-I-O-U-S, Serious Business. It's an origin story. It tells about how Jessica Rabbit became, start, turned from Jessica Krupnik, a poor shop girl who's Working for nothing wages and living with her abusive mother and her nasty stepsisters and stepbrothers, and how she went from that to becoming, you know, Jessica Rabbit, the Jessica Rabbit we all know and love, and uh, how she met Roger. People always want to know how she met Roger. Where did tunes come from? How did Tune Town come to be? So this book answers all those questions.
0: So kind of not sums it up, but kind of puts, you know, another layer to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The book's been doing really well. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's it, a couple of things. If people are gonna read it looking for a 1940s kind of noir thing, uh, this ain't it. There's Toontown. In my mind, is timeless. It's, tunes can exist at any time, at any place. And this book is set in the in modern day. It's not set in the 1940s like the movie was. And you know, I, I justify that by the fact that Jessica Roger, Baby Herman, and all those characters are actors. And uh, after they uh, came to Toontown, uh, they made a movie, set in the 1940s, so, <laughs> you know, as the Lord High, Almighty Pope Tate of Toontown, it's my rules, I make the rules and, you know, you gotta live with them. Uh, the other thing is that Jessica starts off the novel human. She's human. There are no tunes in the world where uh, Jessica starts out. So where did they come from? And where
0: did Roger come from? How did she meet him? All those questions are answered in the book. Oh, that's great. Now I'm going to have to get a copy. Absolutely. And
1: and you're going to have to leave me a review. And believe me, I see all the reviews on Amazon. and I'm going to look for your name. And if it's not there, I'm going to to write you a nasty letter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to cancel my subscription to the Madonna Reporter. How about that? No, don't do that.
0: (laughs) How much time do I have to read it? i uh,
1: take your time. I don't care. It took me two years to write it. If you,
0: if you want to take two years to read it, go ahead. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I mean, you just told the stories about the production and characters and how you wrote it and everything else. I mean, fast forward, 34 years is going to be the anniversary. I believe it's June 22nd this year. I mean, yeah. 34 years, all, you know, your work of art and it's, you know... Maybe kids now don't know what it is unless their parents show them, but for generations... I I
1: think they do. My fan base is... When the movie first came out, my fan base was like everybody. I I got young kids, old people. And as the time progressed, especially then they released the movie on VHS, and parents started using it as a babysitter. So all of a sudden, I got a whole new generation of, of kids who were watching it. And then it came out on DVD. And again, I got another hit. Uh, Parents were using that as a babysitter. And so I got another hit of younger generation kids. And then it started showing on Disney Channel all the time. It's still current. People still know the movie. They still know those characters. Jessica Rabbit is a cultural icon. I get 30 pictures a week of young women cosplaying Jessica Rabbit. Jessica Rabbit is a perfect character because anybody... Any woman looks good as Jessica Rabbit. If you're a little heavy, fine, you look great as Jessica Rabbit. If you're a little thin, fine, you look great as Jessica Rabbit. If you're black, if you're Asian, uh, if you're a guy, <laughs> I get guys cosplaying Jessica Rabbit, and they look great. Some guys cosplay Jessica Rabbit as a guy, they call him Jesse Rabbit. You know, I encourage all of that, because Toontown operates uh, under a, a rainbow banner. I, I, everybody's welcome in the, in the rainbow banner. Uh, the Rainbow uh, Tenth of Toontown. People also send me pictures of uh, Jessica Rabbit tattoos. And I think Jessica Rabbit has been tattooed on half the arms of half the guys in the Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force. Because I've, I've got tons of them. One interesting story, my wife and I were at Saratoga Springs in New York, the summer home of the New York City Ballet. and We were we go every year, we were watching the New York City Ballet. And, uh, we like to sit up in the first balcony because that's the best view. We were in the second row, and in the row in front of us were five young women. And my young, they were your age. you know They were like 35, 36 years old women. They were really punk. I mean, they were pierced and tattooed. and They, they looked like they were there for a Metallica concert. And I thought, well, you know, what are these women doing? at the New York City Ballet, and then the young woman who was sitting just in front of me kind of put her arm on the back of her seat, and from shoulder to elbow, she had Jessica Rabbit tattooed on her arm. Jessica Rabbit wearing camo shorts, a camo crop top, and holding <laughs> an M16. I'm <laughs> looking at that, and my wife, looking at it, she looks at me she's just, you gonna tell her? And I said, I've got to, I mean, how can I not? So I said to her, I said, excuse me, miss, but is that Jessica Rabbit? And she says, yes, it is. She says, my name's Jessica, and she's my spirit animal. And I had to have her tattooed on my arm. And I said, well, why the camo crop top and shorts? And why the M16? And she says, well, I'm a retired Marine Sergeant. And I thought that she should reflect me and what I did. And so I told her who I was and that I I had created Jessica Rabbit and that she was really uh, doing justice to the character. And I appreciated the fact that she was keeping my character alive. I asked her if I could take a picture of her arm and she said yes, and I did. And I posted it on Facebook. And she also posted a picture of that on her Facebook and said, oh, I met the creator of Jessica Rabbit. And he sat behind me at the ballet and he saw my tattoo and he, he really liked it and he was really nice. And by golly, if. And other Jessicas didn't say, oh, yeah, I met him, too, and he was really nice to me, too. And I'm thinking there must be this secret society of Jessicas throughout the United States, so they're all communicating, you know?
0: Definitely.
1: So, you know, I'm, I'm tickled to death that, that characters i created are, are certainly going to outlive me. I mean, they're, they're going to become immortal. 30, 50 years down the road, they'll still know who Roger is, they'll still know who Jessica is. I hope they still know who I am, too, but
0: uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd have more on Jessica. Definitely. I got two questions for you. One, what I was trying to lead into is, I mean, when you sit back and you're thinking about this and the characters (laughs) and, you know, the success of the movie and the books, I mean, how does it make you feel coming from little Earlville to now you're in Boston and you have all the success under your belt?
1: I'm still just Tandy and any Wolf's Kid from Earlville, and I always will be. Uh, Everything I've ever done in my life. While they were alive and even after they died, everything I've ever done in my life, I've done to make them proud of me. And I have never gotten the Hollywood attitude. I I like living in the city just because there's so much to do and it's so exciting. But basically, I'm just a a growthful boy at heart. I have never lost that small-town attitude. You know, my, my mother used to used to talk to everybody. You know, in Earlville, everybody knew everybody else. And he used to talk to everybody. Everybody you met, no matter where you were, on the sidewalk, any place, you'd always say hello and you'd have a conversation. I still do that. And you know, most people in a big city don't, but I still do. And, I, you know, I still talk to people in restaurants and uh, I do a lot of yoga. I do yoga every day. And I, I probably know everybody I do yoga with, hundreds of people. It hasn't changed me as a person uh i'm certainly proud of what i did i can't say i'm not but it hasn't changed me as a person i was the person i was and i still am the person i was and always will
0: be awesome we got to give them a shout out you talked about them quite often what were the names of your mom and dad
1: oh uh ed and eddie wolf and uh anybody listening in earlville who is of a certain age will know ed and Hetty wolf ed uh, used to give uh accordion and guitar lessons. My mom was working in the school cafeteria. And uh, every year, she would give every graduating senior a graduation card with a dollar. And, you know, that was a lot of money for working people back then. But every kid who graduated got a dollar from my mom. And they all loved her. The kids who worked in the cafeteria loved her. And she she's, she's a great woman.
0: And her and I heard my father made me what I am today. I'd like to think that I I am them. i got to leave you on this question because, I mean, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is based off of Roger Rabbit. But as you, you know, displayed and we've talked about, Jessica Rabbit has become an iconic character too. Who do you think, which character is the, you know, most iconic that has come out of this movie and book? Uh,
1: I would have to say Jessica because Roger gets his due. A lot of artists draw Roger and Everybody knows Jessica, and so many people cosplay Jessica at conventions. I would have to say that, that Jessica is that Jessica was voted uh, one of the sexiest women of uh, of the '80s by somebody. I, I'm thinking, you know, she's number for God's sake. But uh, I, I was, I, I went to China did a little tour in China. and lectured at animation uh, schools in China. And whenever I gave a talk and they men- I mentioned Jessica Rabbit, the translator would say Jessica Rabbit, everybody would laugh. And I went up to him afterwards and said, why is everybody laughing? Why is he Jessica Rabbit? And he said, well, Jessica Rabbit is very popular in China. But in China, she is known as Big Mellons. <laughs> oh, well, that makes me the Big Melon band then. So um, i got to think that Jessica will be the character that kind of outlifts everybody else. All right, I just want to give a shout-out to my website, www.garywolf.com, where you can go to learn everything there is to know about me, uh, if you don't know it already. And uh, you can buy my books. uh uh, I, I've also got a Facebook page. Uh, I welcome people to come to my Facebook page. Uh, Jessica Rabbit's serious business has its own Facebook page now, too. That's my pride and joy. Getting a lot of good reviews on that. Uh, everybody says it's just drop-dead funny, which is unusual because if you ask Wikipedia, you know, read me on Wikipedia, they will say that right now I am the premier American humorist. I'm the Mark Twain of our generation. And... I just don't get that because, uh, in my mind, I don't write funny stuff. I write drop-dead serious novels. Everybody reads them and starts laughing. And then they say, wow, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. And I, I didn't write it to be funny. I read it to be serious. So, I don't know. Everybody tells me it's,
0: it's laugh out loud. Uh, so, read it judge for yourself. Well, Gary K. Wolf, the creator of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, other books, notorious characters that we all know about. Thank you for joining Edge of Your Sea podcast. Much appreciated. My pleasure. And and, hey, a big shout out to all the people
1: back there in the Midwest. Uh, You guys are my people. I'm one of you and I'll never forget you.